0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hey
1: everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. Today it's me, Jeff, Aaron, and Greg, and we're going to be talking about fat bikes. And we talk a lot about fat bikes on Single Tracks. but just so you know, Greg and I are, are real big fat bike fanatics. Aaron, not so much so, but <laughs> we're going to have a conversation and discussion around the idea that fat bikes are basically the biggest innovation in mountain biking since, well, since full suspension in the 1990s. I mean, it's hard, it's hard for me personally to come up with something that's a bigger shift in how we view mountain bikes. And so I wanted to talk about sort of that idea and maybe have a little debate about it. You know, I want to start off by asking what is so revolutionary about fat bikes? i will start with you, Greg, since you tend to share my view on that.
2: So this has been a personal
1: pet theory of Jeff and mine for a while now.
2: Um, And I think it does depend a little bit on where you live. But personally, having hailed from uh, central Wisconsin, being born and raised there, I've sort of observed what fat biking has done for the mountain bike scene there and in other places where it gets cold and snowy. And fat biking has truly turned mountain biking from a five-month-per-year sport in those areas to a 12-month-per-year sport. It's absolutely massive to think about riding your bike and pedaling your bike all year round instead of just during the summer months. I personally came to mountain biking from downhill skiing. So downhill skiing was my main winter pastime. But then when I transitioned to training more aerobically in the winter, I ended up running because biking just wasn't feasible. But now I look at biking totally different. You know, Now we have essentially two different riding seasons. We have dirt season and snow season it's really interesting because and not only are you continuing just to ride and you're continuing to be engaged in the sport of mountain biking but it opens up sort of new ways to approach the sport as the seasons change so it's not like you're still doing the same thing but uh you know fat biking opens up new areas you can ride in the winter that you just can't ride in the summer or or aren't interesting to ride during the summer months such as over frozen rivers and lakes snowmobile trails that would be boring on a standard mountain bike and maybe too deep of of dirt or loose sand but during the winter are perfect for fat biking and finally fat bikes have also brought us to places where we physically could never ride bikes before so we can ride over surfaces such as snow that we couldn't ride before but we can also ride in places that we could never pedal before such as beaches deserts, simply going cross country, are already mentioned frozen rivers and lakes. And then there are certain places that are only open for over snow travel, like they're open for wheeled or other non-foot travel during the summer, but may be open for such over snow travel during the winter. Probably more I could be said on that, but that's sort of the gist of it. It's just sort of expanded our horizons astronomically.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, it kind of unlocks the potential that mountain bikes had in the beginning you know I mean early days mountain bikes were billed as like all-terrain bikes and that was true to some degree but there were a lot of terrains where people didn't want to ride their bikes like sand and snow and fat bikes have allowed them to do that so how does the introduction of fat bikes compare to other recent innovations like 29ers and 27 5-inch wheels a lot of people might lump the two or three things in together since it is all sort of like an evolution of wheel sizes. But how do you guys see them as similar or different?
0: I think their evolution has been a lot like the evolution of the 29er. At first, they were kind of awkward looking, awkward handling, heavy, but they showed promise and people saw the promise that was there. And it was you know a very niche group with a you know core supporters of the idea of what fat bikes could be. But, you know, now, like with 29ers, they've got the geometry figured out. There's carbon fiber frames, there's carbon fiber wheels, tires have gotten lighter, You know everybody's running tubeless now. I mean, you have full suspension fat bikes, so they're, they're totally legit mountain bikes, they just have really big tires. And then, you know, kind of on that topic, I would argue that 27.5 wasn't really an innovation at all. It was more just a tool to sell more bikes. You know, I think there's, there are advantages to 29ers and, you know, 27.5 bikes are great. I own one myself, but they really aren't that different than 26ers. But if you look at a fat bike, you know, it is offering something that's a wholly different experience than you can get with any other mountain bike.
2: Maybe I interpret that question a little bit differently. But, you know, when I think about 29ers coming on the scene, 27.5, and even other mechanical advantages that we've seen recently, like one by 11 drivetrains, I think all those things... Ultimately, they just help you mountain bike better and more easily over the same terrain. People call 29ers a revolution and in innovation. I mean, it's just a modification on a previous design, ultimately. You can still ride everything on a 26er. 29ers going to make it a little more easier, but you're still riding the same terrain. Whereas fat bikes bring you to an area and a terrain and a season that you couldn't normally enjoy before. You couldn't, you know, potentially you could have pounded through a couple of inches of snow on your standard mountain bike, but you couldn't go and ride snowmobile trails at 12,000 feet in the mountains on a, on a normal mountain bike. You can do that on a fat bike. So I see almost everything else that's happened in the mountain bike industry just to be modifications on an existing sign, whereas I think fat bike is truly innovation, opens a different field up to us.
1: Yeah. Well, so a lot of mountain bikers, you know, might say to themselves, I'm not really interested in riding in snow. I don't live somewhere it snows and I have no interest of riding sand and stuff like that. So maybe they think that fat bikes don't apply to them, but how is what's happening with fat bikes affecting the rest of the industry? Is any of that sort of bleeding over into other stuff that we're seeing?
0: Well, maybe it's just a, a product of where I live, but as you said, you know, I, I hardly ever see fat bikes out in the wild here in Georgia. You know, we we cover them a lot on the site. I hear people talk about them, but I don't actually see them on the trail. And again, that could just be a product of living here in Georgia, where, you know, obviously we don't get any snow. Snow you could actually fat bike in. But, uh, you know, I suppose that'd be different if I lived, you know, in the Midwest or in the North or out in Colorado. But there are definite benefits to having a larger tire and the traction that a larger tire provides, which is why we're seeing... The mid-fat size, the 27.5 plus, I mean, that's kind of the hottest thing going right now in, in mountain biking and I think due in large part to the people seeing the benefits of, you know, having a giant tire on your mountain bike.
2: Yeah, I think I agree with that. Like, so we're seeing tire size and perceptions shift even on the dry end of the scale and in the summer spectrum. In a little more, so I totally agree with what Aaron said. In a little more ambiguous sense, also, I think it's continuing to build mountain bike as a sport and a lifestyle. So this is a bit harder to quantify, but I think especially for those people that couldn't ride during the winter before, um, it's turning mountain biking into even more and more an integral part of their existence. You know, instead of you like, oh, I bike, you know, when I can, and I ski when I can't. It's just bikes all the time. So, a bit harder to quantify, but potentially equally as important.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting idea. So, what are some of the common misperceptions? I mean, for me, the thing that I still hear from people, less so now, but when people would describe what it's like riding a fat bike, they say like, "Oh, I just had this goofy grin on my face the whole time." And to me, that kind of diminishes the experience. I mean, it's it is different, but it's not silly or it's not just for fun. These are efficient machines for getting around certain terrains. And I would argue even, you know, you get the tire pressures right and you ride a full suspension fat bike, you can get some performance out of it as well. There's a lot of benefits maybe that are a bit extreme. I mean, maybe plus size is where things are going to shake down for on the performance side. But yeah, I think to me, one of the misconceptions is that fat bikes are just silly and, you know, you're supposed to, look ridiculous riding them
0: i mean come on they do look a little ridiculous they do look ridiculous (laughs) i mean
1: part of that some people probably like that right i mean it is something different and i have seen a few here in atlanta you know people riding them in town and when i've been testing some bikes too just the looks and the comments that i get are are pretty priceless so that's that's part of it admittedly conversation starter
0: (laughs) i'd say probably the biggest misconception about fat bikes is that they're only for snow. I think that was due in large part to how they were positioned when they were first introduced to the market. That's how they appear in ads and the marketing and the videos that you see that go along with these bikes. It was always people riding in snow. So I think that was a good way for them to get into the market and sell bikes, but I think that's also... Kind of something that they're having to overcome now, right? Because obviously, if you're a fat bike manufacturer, you don't want people just riding your fat bike in the winter. You want them riding your bikes year round. So, I think there there are companies that are trying to overcome that. I mean, you know, for example, Salsa with the um, the Buxal, right, is a full suspension. You don't need a a full suspension to ride snowmobile trails. You know, they <laughs> definitely have that thing. It's a trail bike. So, I think that's something. That's a a common misperception about fat bikes and something that they're going to kind of have to overcome and make people realize that you can ride fat bikes all year round, if that's your thing.
2: Totally. Another misperception I continue hearing is that fat bikes are really heavy and slow. And while I think the fat biking industry didn't do itself any favors when it began with steel fat bikes with poor geometry like some of that gets modified and tweaked over time and you eventually arrive at the best possible scenario but fat bikes these days i mean you can buy sub 20 pound stock fat bikes you know they're rigid carbon fat bikes that are lighter than any bike in my garage you know (laughs) and even at a low price point nowadays you can buy an aluminum fat bike with five inch wheels and tires that's below 30 pounds. I mean, which even my like $7,000 carbon wonder bike, full suspension, you know, six inch travel bike is about 30 pounds, you know? So you don't get many bikes a ton lower than that. So fat bikes have come down in weight and are now quite reasonable. Sort of on that, those same lines is this perception that fat bikes are expensive. And again, I think, Initially, they were because it was a really proprietary technology. All the frames initially were steel, which is more expensive than aluminum. And fat bikes were a little bit higher end commodity because they're so specialized. But now, again, the prices have come down and you can get a really well-specced fat bike that doesn't weigh a lot for a very reasonable amount of money. So um, I think those are two things that hopefully will The perception will continue to change over time
1: yeah well you mentioned carbon fat bikes and so i wanted to talk about a little bit about where you guys see the technology right now in fat bikes are we sort of at the beginning days with fat bike technology or middle or or have we reached sort of the peak i mean if people are doing carbon and doing a lot of the things that regular mountain bikes are doing yeah i'm kind of interested to know where else we can go with this i think a personal CS uh, sorta of in the middle
2: still on fat bike innovation. I think there's still a lot that can be done to dial in fat bikes. I think many fat bikes still have issues with the rear end design with things like calf bang still existing and I think some manufacturers still haven't figured out chain stay length versus Q factor versus tire width versus chainstay and seat stay width. And I think there's a lot that can be done for certain brands to dial in it. Other brands, you know, have come really close and are really getting it so i see certain things like that continuing to progress however you know there's potential we could still see some benefits with tires and wheel design that would get us you know lighter weights more durability Yeah, you know, we're still dialing in bottom bracket widths hub standards there's still like a bajillion hub standards for different fat bike setups some of the dropout situations still aren't ideal and we only have one legit fat bike fork on the market. Yeah. Going to um, and we that. only have two full suspension fat bikes. So I think there's a lot of ways we can see fat bikes change over the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, I was going to mention the the fork thing. I'm glad you did. I, it's still kind of really surprising to me that there aren't more options available. But you know, I guess that goes back to Jeff asked, you know, where, where are we in terms of technology and where are we in terms of adoption I think in terms of adoption, we're still r- really in the early stages. You know, as I mentioned, I can count on probably three fingers <laughs> how many fat bikes I've seen on trails in Georgia this year. You know, not counting my buddy Donald that I ride with. But um, yeah, so I, th- I think you know as you start to see fat bikes being used more as as a mountain bike and being used for general trail riding, not just riding in the snow or riding in the sand. I think you'll see more people buying fat bikes and therefore you'll see component manufacturers starting to offer more more products. And the, the Bluto by all accounts is a great fork, but it would be cool to see some competition in that arena.
1: Yeah, I agree. Suspension definitely seems to be an area where there's a lot of room for innovation. So one common thing that we hear from a lot of mountain bikers is that fat biking is just a fad. So if it is just a fad, have we peaked? Are we near the peak? Is there still a lot of room to grow? I mean, I think that gets at the the previous question, but I mean, I know for me, um, my next mountain bike is probably going to be a fat bike. I mean, I've got a couple of good mountain bikes that I like, and I live in Georgia, but I still think that a fat bike is a versatile enough bike for me that it's not just a fat. It's not just Something to add to my quiver, it's something that, you know, I I would like to ride all the time. But I'm interested to hear what you guys think.
2: I think it's you know, we there's two different things we can look at. You know, ridership, like the number of people actually riding bikes and fat bike sales. I think we have actually seen maybe a slowdown in in fat bike sales recently. Like it used to be we couldn't get any fat bikes in for review. There are no fat bikes to be had, they're already sold or pre-sold. But now we've got a lot of companies coming to us saying, we want you to review our fat bike. Like We have media test bikes and the implication then is they need more help selling their fat bike. Part of that could just be due to more competition in the market, but I think a lot of people bought fat bikes initially, might have bought their second fat bikes, and now (laughs) for a lot of people, they already have their fat bike and they might not need to upgrade for a few years yet, especially if... Technology doesn't change much, so well, I think we could still see a big growth in ridership. I think we're going to see sales like flattening out after an initial surge.
0: Yeah, I would I would agree with you, Greg. I think just from anecdotally, you know, going to Interbike, it seems the past couple years everything was fat bike. You know, everything was look at our new fat bike, look at our new wheels, look at our tires. And this year that that was much less prevalent. While there were a a handful of companies that did have um new models. There was definitely way more buzz about twenty seven point five plus.
2: Part of it I wonder is, you know, if fat biking is just sort of we like accept it now. It's like this is an integral part of almost every brand's lineup. Everybody's got a fat bike now, which is interesting. You know, whereas you really had to seek out a fat bike before. Now you can just go to your favorite brand for the most part and be like, all right, I'm gonna buy your guys a fat bike. Mm-hmm. So I expect to see ridership increasing people going out of their way to fat bike in more interesting places instead of just on their home terrain, um, traveling Mm -hmm. more to fat bike. I think there's a lot of things that we can see happening over the coming years.
1: Right. Right. And we're even seeing tourism groups and people like that trying to promote their fat biking and getting people to visit destinations that maybe are a little bit quiet during the winter. And even as we see more trails and trail management groups, you know, maintaining their trails for fat biking in the winter. I think as that happens more, as there are more trails with nice groomed or packed snow, then more people are going to get into it. So I agree. I think there's definitely some room to grow there, if not in sales, at least in ridership. Well, we talked early on about how fat bikes are different from some of the other sort of evolutions we've seen in the mountain bike industry over the last few years, So if fat biking is such a different thing or such a departure from where bikes have been in the past, could we see fat biking becoming sort of its own culture or its own niche that's separate from mountain biking? I mean, does fat biking exist without mountain biking? Could it be like a, people see it as more of a snow sport, something that they do when they, you know, travel to a ski resort? We're seeing too that fat biking even is having its own events and things like that. So is it is it a separate thing from mountain biking? Can it exist on its own?
0: I think it already does kind of exist on its own. Really, it harkens back to the earliest days of mountain biking, you know, kind of before everyone started taking themselves so friggin' seriously. <laughs> the people that ride fat bikes, they, you know, they do it because they, they think it's fun, not because it's, you know, the cool thing to do. I personally have no use for a, a fat bike. You know, I've ridden a handful of them and they're cool. Like I, you know, but it's just, it's not, not my bag necessarily, but I don't, I don't understand. That's necess- the hate that's directed at fat <laughs> bikes. I don't, I mean, I don't understand the hate that's directed at any bike, like at 29ers and you know, now 27, five plus this is, you know, I, I know I've mentioned this to you before, Jeff, but the way I look at it is mountain bikers love trucks, right? Like we all <laughs> love trucks. Trucks are cool. They run over stuff, and you can get them dirty and drive around in the mud. And what's cooler than a truck? A truck with big-ass tires on it, you know? <laughs> like, everybody everybody who loves a truck loves the jacked-up version of that truck, you know? I mean, like, the base Tacoma with its little 15-inch steel wheels is pretty lame-looking, you know? But you take that same truck, and you put some big 35-inch tires on it, and the thing looks badass. So I don't, I, you know, I don't understand why that same kind of mentality doesn't transfer over to bikes, you know. So you take a, you take a regular trail bike, and you put big ass tires on it, and <laughs> like, sh- shouldn't we all be on board with that? I mean, don't we all want the most traction? But yeah, you know, like I said, it's not, it's not my thing, but um, I there, there is a place for them. I think they already have their own little corner of the mountain bike market and um i I only think we'll start to see that grow
2: i see fat biking as like a subset of mountain biking so obviously not every mountain biker is going to be a fat biker but i don't see fat biking as existing independent of mountain biking so i guess it's like it kind of depends on how you define the question ultimately i see okay the people that are fat biking are mountain bikers It's like the same people. It's like the same group. And if the mountain bikers aren't fat biking, who's going to be fat biking? And I think the answer is basically nobody. Potentially, you could have some roadies that want to ride fat bikes during the winter and won't ride dirt. But that's going to be a pretty minor market. And I also don't see people just riding snow bikes and not riding dirt because fat biking is really friggin' hard. It is It is challenging. I mean... Pedaling in the snow, even if you have a good groomed surface, for me, I'm lucky if I'm pulling down, like, a six-mile-an-hour average, you know, like, mm-hmm. I'm doing pretty solid if I can make that happen, and and honestly, and that's, like, ideal condition. The conditions are bad. You know, you're going to end up pushing your bike in the snow. I mean, it's uh, it's much more strenuous than average mountain biking, in my opinion, at least around here, so you're not gonna see like a casual person be like, Oh, I'm just gonna go I'm gonna go fat biking and like do more than like two miles, you know. So I, I see it as always being sort of a subset of mountain biking. Yeah, you know, and we also have the same technology. You know, we've got roughly the same wheel sizes, the tires are bigger, you know, same components, same bike manufacturers. Whereas you're likening sort of BMX a mountain bike and generally with BMX, I mean you've got different componentry you know, the handlebars are different. The wheels are different. The drivetrains are even sort of different. I mean, you're running a single speed. A lot of the actual manufacturers themselves are different, you know, BMX-specific manufacturers and mountain bike-specific manufacturers, whereas with fat biking and mountain biking, it's all blended together ultimately.
0: Right. So all, all fat bikers are mountain bikers, but not all mountain bikers are fat bikers.
2: <laughs> Essentially, yes. Yes. There you go. Boom. Two seconds Aaron's
1: got. <laughs> cool. I think that was a that was a fun discussion about fat bikes and I'm sure probably not the last one for us. So now I want to move into talking about what's grinding our gears and stoking our spokes this week.
0: So on the, the grinding my gears, I mean honestly this could be one every time we do this segment, but um I, I've referred to it as the need argument as in you know we post an article on a review of something or a uh, you know a press release on a new product and and people say you know i don't need that i don't need that much travel i don't need wheels that are that light i don't need tires that wide i don't need bars that wide you know i don't need this i don't need that okay cool maybe you don't need that but maybe there are people that need it or maybe there are people that want those things it's like people want advancement to stop with whatever the last thing they got is you know (laughs) so if they got a six inch travel 27.5 bike you know they see a six inch travel 27.5 plus bike come out and they're like no that's dumb they shouldn't have made that like I don't need that (laughs) well yeah you don't need it you've already got an awesome bike at home but also you know no one's gonna come and boot kick your door open and force you to buy a new mountain bike so that's just something you know like I said we see it all the time but the need argument like I don't I don't need an 11 speed dry train. I don't need uh brakes that big. I, you know, I always I tell people, well, you don't need suspension, you don't need disc brakes, you don't need tubeless tires, you know. So when you start crossing the things, I mean, honestly, you don't need a bike. So <laughs> right, pre- yeah. pretty soon. I mean, it's a it's a slippery slope, right? Like you eventually you're uh you know, the components are disappearing off your bike until you know, you have an empty basement. So <laughs> That, 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 uh, those comments always bug me and, uh, you know, so stop it.
2: <laughs> yeah. The number of things we need in life is, is pretty minimal. We want a lot of things.
0: Yeah. That's right. What was that? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's <laughs> like food and shelter. Bike's not on there. No.
1: Like, maybe, maybe it should be. That would be like a funny t-shirt, but it's not true. <laughs> Boom.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, potentially you could make like Potentially make an argument for like outdoor recreation or time in the wild as like a human need to an extent, but do you need bikes to fill that need? Not necessarily
0: what about you guys what's what's grinding you guys' gears?
2: Well speaking about time in the wild and solitude, what's uh grinding my gears is the continued adoption of more wilderness areas, so new wilderness areas, expanding of wilderness borders. And what comes with it is the subsequent closure of mountain bike trails. I never got a chance to ride in the Boulder White Clouds area of Idaho. It was always on my list. Boom, now it's a wilderness area. Trails are off limits to bikes. And I just wrote a pretty lengthy article about some of the crap that's going down North Carolina. And sure, IMBA, Sorba, Pisca area Sorba, and other mountain bike groups in ourselves are – trying to fight it and be like look these are great trails and we want them to stay open to mountain bikes but there's no guarantee that those areas won't become wilderness areas you know it's very possible and it's happening all over the nation it's happening in montana new mexico idaho north carolina many other places it's grinding my gears man (laughs) yeah i think uh problem is like i think we as mountain bikers we want to preserve wild areas we're staunch environmentalists in general and we love the beauty and the untrammeled nature of the mountains and the forests. But the way the wilderness is set up to ban mountain bikes essentially puts us at odds with other environmentalists. Whereas I think if we're all on the same side, we could accomplish so much more. Yeah. Consider my gears ground.
1: <laughs> Well, I want to talk about something that's stoking my spokes. It's gotten me excited for 2016. We're working on rebranding single tracks, so updating the brand a little bit. And we haven't talked about it online or anything. It's not something that we're going to like preview. Basically, one day you're going to come to the site and you're going to be like, holy smokes, they got a sweet new logo. I'm really excited about it. The process has been really interesting and kind of exciting, too. Just really like distilling down what Single Tracks is about, what our mission is and how we're gonna accomplish that, you know, going forward for the next five, ten years. So I'm really excited about that. And once we have that new brand identity and logo stuff, you know, I'm excited to slap it on a bunch of t shirts and koozies and all kinds of cool stuff and get that out to people. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about that. Excited for twenty sixteen.
2: So my spokes are also stoked. I have a new Scott Big John fat bike in for review, and I have been enjoying it immensely. i got to get on writing my on-review article, but I have to say I'm pretty impressed with this bike. What's most impressive is that it's uh, Scott's lowest-end offering. They only have two fat bikes, so it's not a huge range, but this fat bike, the MSRP is $1,600, so which most realms is on the very affordable end, but it's got very, very solid parts for the price, like not the highest end parts, but reliable Shimano brakes, two by 10 Shimano drivetrain, solid five, full five inch tires, which, you know, a little bit pricier than the four inch and nicer, which is smartly set up, but the bike's also not too heavy. It comes in right around that 30 pound range for a rigid aluminum frame and fork. And I think like the design and the geometry is spot on. I've had little to no calf bang issues. So I'm just super impressed to see such a solid bike for a solid price. You know. Like yeah. to see more of that.
0: It yeah. looks good too.
2: It's it looks yeah, it looks legit.
0: Um I've got something that's Stoking my spokes as well. It's actually uh, an, a component. I just posted the review of it this week. The SRAM GX 11 speed group. It's SRAM's most affordable 1 x 11 offering. You can have. You can get the entire group for 560 bucks. So you know it's not cheap, but it's affordable. Especially considering you you wouldn't necessarily need to purchase the cranks. You know, if you really if you already have a crank set you like, you get a get the shifter and the rear derailleur and the cassette, and you're you know, you're probably more around the, you know, $300, 350 range. But we posted the review this week, and it got some really good feedback. And yeah, the more I ride that group, the more I like it. I think it's, it's, it's the best bang for your buck group going right now. And, um, you know, I think it's, like I mentioned in the article, it's it's really cool to see, to see it being spec'd on a, a lot of complete bikes for 2016.
2: Aaron, do you know, off the top of your head, what, like a retail for a the two by 11 setup for that drivetrain would be is a little bit more expensive with a front derailleur and stuff
0: i believe it is yeah because you're adding a front derailleur and a shifter and another chain ring so it would be it'd be a little bit more expensive
2: okay but man i could really go for one of those for my next drivetrain might do that
0: trickle down technology at its finest (laughs)
1: well cool that's all we got this week thanks for joining us we'll see you again next week peace